morning, church. Today's scripture lesson um, comes from the book of Genesis, the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 9. And I'm reading from the Common English Bible Translation. All people on the earth had one language and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. They said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, there is now one people and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do, and now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language there so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is named Babel, because there the Lord mixed up the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, the lover of all people, Speak to us today. Allow your spirit to be with us as we contemplate your word and what it means for us today. In your name, amen. So it's Pentecost, and I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and what that means is lots of tongue speaking and lots of talk about Acts 2. And today we're not going to do that because of a lot of other reasons. Um, We're going to talk about the Tower of Babel, which... If you're like me and you grew up Christian or you've been in the church for a while, you're aware of this story, but you might not actually know the story. You know, I remember I went to Sunday school my whole life. I don't remember ever covering the Tower of Babel in Sunday school. I'm pretty sure there was never one of those felt board cutouts of the Tower of Babel well made. I'm pretty sure I never saw any of that. And maybe, maybe as an adult or maybe as an eager teen in my case you did one of those read through the bible in a year things and so you read the story of the tower of babel and you thought well that's really weird and then you moved on to whatever the next passage was probably the psalm for the day or something the thing is as christians we don't really pay attention to this story very much because it doesn't actually provide much for us it's a weird story it falls in the middle of noah's story in the book of genesis actually it doesn't connect to jesus in any seemingly logical way And so we just sort of like pass over. It's like, there's this thing in the Bible where it talks about everybody had the same language and then God made everybody confused. And at a certain level, that's the purpose of the story is to say, this is why there's all these languages. And that's sort of where we as Christians have left this thing. Fortunately for us, our good friends that are Jews have spent a lot of time studying this thing and they have a whole history of interpretation of this story. And there's multiple layers of it. And it's really fascinating. I spent 
way too many work hours this week reading Jewish interpretations of this passage that my boss would have been very upset to find out about. Um, but it's really fascinating. And there's two basic levels at which this interpretation stuff, the, their interpretation works at. So there's the first, which is sort of the, the literary criticism history portion of it. And so we'll talk about that for a second here. So at a very base level, you need to know that this story, as, it, as we are presented it, was written in Babylon during the period of the exile. So the Jews were living in Babylon on having had been moved there by the Babylonians. So that's the first thing you need to know about it. The second thing you need to know is that in Babylonian, there's a word, or Babali, Babali, yeah, Babali, that means gate of heaven. And in Hebrew, there's a word that is Babel, which sounds very similar, and it means confusion. And so when it was, when Babylonians would hear the Jews talking about the Tower of Babel, they would think, they, oh, they're talking about the Tower of the Gate of Heaven. And when the Jews would hear talk about it, what they were really talking about is the Tower of Confusion. And so on a very sort of literary level, this story is a farce. They're, it's a joke on the Babylonians. And so essentially they're making fun of the Babylonians. And, and so at some other point, you can, you can stop and you can read this from that level and get a good chuckle out of it. Um, but that's not the level we're going to live on. The next level where there's the most sort of like real talk happens on this is the level of um, myth or allegory. And this is where we're going to hang out for a while. So as with all myths and, uh, and allegories, each items have metaphorical meanings, right? So in this particular story, there are three that are really important. The first is first is the language. The language in this story represents uniformity. And so within the passage, we're told that they, have the same, they all have the same language and they all have the same vocabulary, at least the translation I use says they all had the same vocabulary. In this one we said they all have the same words, which sounds redundant, but it's not really. And so and my example for you is this. When I say Coca-Cola, do you think pop or soda? Now we all have the same language, or at least most of us speak English first language. I'm looking around, I'm thinking that's what it is. And it's the same thing for us, but for some of us, it's soda. For me, it's soda because I grew up in the Northeast. And for others, it's pop because they grew up someplace else. And if you grew up in Georgia, it's just Coke, which is just sort of a randomness to the thing. So that's what it's talking about. It, what, what, we're find, what we get here is that not only are there, is there a uniformity of language, but it's a very specific uniformity of language, that there, is, that there are other people that speak the same language, but they don't necessarily use the same words. And so there's a, a, a differentiation here between the people in Babel and everybody else. The second thing you know about is the tower. So the tower in, in this story represents power, it represents importance and represents strength. And so oh, the tower is this thing that says, we are important because of who we are. And the thing that connects these two is our third metaphor that we need to look at is the bricks, which you think is really a weird thing to say. Why, why do the bricks matter? And in fact, every time I read the story up until I started reading Jewish interpretation of this, I, I thought, why are they telling us about the bricks? And the, and it's actually really kind of interesting. So at this point in time, we're talking way before like a lot. So it's like before the Bronze Age, before the Iron Age, like back then. Um, there were a few ways of building a building. Like if you were rich, you could use wood for some stuff. But there's, in this region, which is sort of like the Iraq area, right? 
Um, not a ton of wood. So you, if you're going to use wood, you kind of have to be rich. So that's not really useful for most people. Um, you could use rocks, which work to a certain extent. You can build a reasonable shelter with, a, with rocks, but you have to find them and you have to like glue them together in some way. Um, but the most common way of building something was with bricks. And with bricks, there are two ways of making bricks, which things I never knew I would know, is that there are two different ways of making bricks. Now, the most common way of making bricks would be you mix up a batch of brick mud, and then you put them in forms, and then you let the sun dry them. Now, in Iraq, it gets pretty warm, and it's pretty dry, and so typically these bricks would dry pretty quickly, and you'd end up with bricks. But the problem with this particular method is that depending on where you put the bricks and how much shade they got and how hot it was that day, did it, did it rain that day, hey, the bricks would dry differently, and so there's this, there was always a certain amount of shrinkage and a certain amount of warpage that comes along with this particular method. And so you end up with bricks that are similar but not the same. And so that's useful. But if you're building a tower that's going up to heaven, what you really need is bricks that are all the same. And the way that you do that is you bake them. And that's what we're told that they do here, is that they bake the bricks because you have a consistent heat source, and so the bricks dry at the same rate, and they, get, and they stay the same size, the same shape. And so that's what they do. And so the bricks in our story are actually the connector between the tower and the language bit of it, okay? And essentially what the authors are telling us is that the people of Babylon had created a, a sort of forced control over everything, and that was how they were going to establish power. And that was the way that they were going to, to show that they were of importance. And what we know about them from, this, from the text is that they were terrified of having that uniformity dispersed. Because the text says to us, as they say, let us do this thing lest we be scattered amongst the world. So essentially they're saying we need to show our power and that we're important so that we don't have to go deal with everybody else who uses the word pop right? Because obviously pop is the wrong word. <laughs> Duh. So that's their thing. And so God comes down and he sees this forced, forced uniformity and God doesn't have a pro has a problem with forced uniformity. He, and the thing is, forced uniformity is bad, but what's worse about forced uniformity is that it also creates exclusion. And it creates outsiders. And God's not good with that whole thing. And so that's God's issue with the, with the people of Babel. Because, you know what, everything's interesting. But an interesting thing about this particular passage is that God doesn't destroy the tower. God doesn't destroy the tower. What God does is he, can, is he confuses their language. He makes it so this forced uniformity that has been created by the people of Babel is no longer able to achieve its ends. And, which means that everybody is an outsider all of a sudden. And everybody is also simultaneously an insider. Weird how that works. That's what God does there. And that's, that's sort of the mythology of this whole thing, is that God is not about that. And actually, if you look at sort of the, the timeline of the book of Genesis, the very next chapter is when God calls Abram out from his people, where Abram becomes an outsider. The people of Babel prior to the confusion wouldn't have been good with that. And God's purpose for calling out Abram was the blessing of the whole world. God is not about exclusion in any way, shape, or form, and that was God's issue with the people of Babel. He didn't care about the tower. Like, they could build a tower as all as they want. 
that doesn't matter. What matters is that the way that they were, the reasoning and the methods that they were using for building it created a forced uniformity that was built on the exclusion of others that were not like them. Back about 10, 15 years ago, me and Jen, we were, we were back east in Maine with my family. My dad was watching TV. And a commercial came on for this show called, um, my name is Earl. Do you any of you remember this show, show at all? I remember that it existed. I never actually watched it. And there was something about this show, this particular commercial that my dad saw, where all of a sudden he barks out, if you watch My Name is Earl, you're not really a Christian. To which me and Jen looked at each other with, and simultaneously sort of telepathically said to each other, Wait, what? That can't be right. My dad, at that point, had created the dividing line between Christian and non-Christian on the viewership of My Name is Earl, which is just a weird comedy on NBC. He, which, why it, I remember what channel it was on, I don't know. But that, it's just this weird comedy, right? But the thing about it is that my dad isn't a lot, in that instant, isn't a lot different than the rest of us. Because as human beings, one of our primary desires is to know who's in and who's out. Uh, who's one of us and who's not one of us. Who's like me, who's not like me. Right? Okay, and within the church, we get that a lot. Because there's always this, who's going to heaven and who's not. And so, well, my dad may have put the line on, my name is Earl, the church puts it in a lot of different places. And it goes from um, sort of sweet, earnest places to kind of, not even kind of, but very nefarious places. So like, it starts with, well, if you haven't said the, the, the sinner's prayer, then you're not going to heaven, and you're not a Christian. And what? You voted for a Democrat? You're not, going to a, you're not really a Christian. You voted for a Republican? You're not really a Christian. And you support abortion? You're not really a Christian. And it's not based on anything, really, other than, and they decided this is where the line is. And the thing is, where we put that line is always dependent upon the furthest extent of our comfort with anything. So... If I'm comfortable up to the point of saying, oh, well, you get to be a Christian if you said the prayer, then that's fine. So I'll accept anybody who said the prayer. We're good. But if I'm not comfortable with that, if I want more like, control over the situation, then, well, you have to say the prayer and you have to go to church at least three times a month. Then you're really a Christian. And if I'm really like, serious about this, then it's you need to do all these things plus this other thing. And what all of this is doing is creating a forced conformity that is in contrast to the actual will and desire of God. Um, somewhere along the way, we need to realize that this is not in line with what God is doing. The theologian Diana Bettler-Bass um, frequently says this thing, and, it, and this is the way that I hold the line on all of this all the time anymore is she says God's people are all people and if at any point what the number of people that is all people is greater than the number of people that you think are God's people then you've entered into sin she she makes this argument and I'm gonna make this argument and two that anytime we start to create an arbitrary line that says these people get to go to heaven and these people don't. We've missed God. Because God's desire is for the whole world. 
God's desire is for all people. And if we start limiting that based upon what I'm comfortable with, then we miss God because God doesn't give a hoot about what you're comfortable with. God's call is for all people, whether you, are, you feel comfortable with it or not. And that's what God is trying, aiming to do. And that's where God is going at. And that's how we tie this back to the, to the Tower of Babel. Now, it is Pentecost, and so we do have to talk about Acts a little bit because it wouldn't be Pentecost <laughs> if we didn't, right? Um, so in, in, in our story, there's a point where God confuses the language, and depending on your translation, it says something like, God mixed up the languages, or God made it so they couldn't understand each other anymore. There's a way of translating the actual phrase in Hebrew where it says, God made it so they could no longer hear each other. And there's this idea that like, I mean, the languages are confused, but they could no longer hear each other. Now, when we get to Acts 2, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's happened. And if you haven't read Acts 2, I encourage you to, it's interesting. Um, there's this whole thing where tongues of fire come down on people and they're sort of like flapping around and stuff. I, I grew up at a Pentecostal church. I have the weirdest pictures in my head on what happened in Pentecost. Um, so there's that, and then Peter gives a sermon that was, you know, it's okay. Um, but the real miracle of Pentecost is this. We're told that there are, there are people in, the, in Jerusalem at that time from all over the world that spoke all sorts of languages. And when the Spirit of God fell on them, they all heard, they all prophesied, and they all heard each other in, the same, in their own language. The miracle of Pentecost is that through the Holy Spirit, we are able to re-communicate again. We, and what the Holy Spirit does in that moment is the Holy Spirit creates uniformity in diversity. And that is God's call. God's call is for all of us to interact together. And the only way we actually get to that is through living into the, the actual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now here we are, it's Pentecost, it's the first Sunday of Pride, and I think it's utterly important for us to remember that the call of God is for all people, regardless of everything. God wants you no matter who you are. God wants everyone no matter who they are and what they've done. And I think that maybe that's the important thing here. And that's actually, I think, why I... The Tower of Babel is part one of our scriptures on Pentecost because it says God's desire is for all people and not for any sort of forced conformity that lessens who we are as, as people. Let us be those people. 